Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 39. Appreciated that prayer today. It really goes right with this text. We often try to be our own rock, our own fortress, our own defense, as Terry prayed. And here in this psalm today, David is reminded again that he cannot be his own cure. He cannot figure out his own way. And we live in a society that because of self-worship, which is really the American culture, it's a culture of self-worship, self-help, self-actualization, uh, on and on it goes. Uh, we tr- We are prone to, as people, prone to thinking we can handle it all, we can figure it out, we can find our own solution. The answer lies within. Uh, there's a song by a, a rock band, and the whole song is about the answer lies within you. You know, you got to find that inner light, you got to find that inner voice, right? This is a lot of the occult teaching. And here in this psalm, God comes through with his truth and his word, and he's very good at this. He takes the hammer of his truth, and he just shatters that lie. We need God. And David's heart is just burning here in this psalm of wanting God, wanting God's solutions, wanting God's answers. And it's not always easy following God's way. It's a narrow way. It's not a wide way, right? Jesus says that. It's a narrow path. It's a hard path, but it's the right one. So today's message is called Maintaining Hope in God Alone. And the reason the word maintaining is there is because over and over throughout our Christian life, we're going to be prone to wandering, going wayward, uh, making our path crooked instead of straight. And God is so gracious to come to us time and time and time again and to recorrect us and recalibrate us. In fact, it's almost a daily thing of needing recalibration, right? Where our minds start wandering. When you're afraid, what happens to your mind? The wheels just start turning and they don't stop, right? That's why you're up till 2 in the morning trying to figure out a solution. God already has it. Maybe he hasn't told you what that is yet, but he's already got it. And we worry, we get frustrated, we get angry with God. Over this last year, I I confessed to Amber recently that there were periods over last year where I got really angry with God, really mad. And it was sinful, right? And here in this psalm, David is angry, he's pent up, he's suffering, and he wants to be very, very careful though, how he approaches God. This is the really big takeaway today. Here's the big idea. In this psalm, we see David desires to go to God with his pain, with his struggling, and that is good. He runs to him. But David wants to do that in a correct way. David wants to do so carefully, and he does not want to be sinful in his complaining. We're not sure again 
what is causing David to suffer in the psalm, although there are aspects to the psalm that we touched on last week that some of it was probably due to sin. And so we see David confessing his sins again in this psalm. But we can tell by the by the psalm that he's sort of in a state of shock. He has pain. This might be what we call today post-traumatic stress disorder. He is suffering anguish in many ways, and he just wants to cry out to God, but he's being very careful. He wants to do so without sinning. So David is afflicted. He is angry. He's sorrowful. He's what we would call at his wit's end. He has nowhere left to go. No other way to respond but to cry out to God with his complaints. So the psalm teaches us how to complain in a godly way, but to do so not presumptuously and not disrespectfully. I do think that there, there is a tendency for our in our evangelical culture to just let your heart go out there, wear your heart on your sleeve, just be who you are, you know, that we tend to be a bit careless in God's presence. But David's a man who fears God, meaning he has a veneration and awe and a respect of his father. Something that I think we've somewhat lost today. So he doesn't want to be arrogant. He doesn't want to be presumptuous. And he goes to the father in Christ's name by the redeemer with confession. And he wants to consider his posture carefully. There is also an overarching set of themes in this passage that resonate almost verbatim with the book of Ecclesiastes as well. You're going to see that when we read this in a minute too. I hope you you can kind of hear the book of Ecclesiastes coming through this passage. The psalmist is struggling in the midst of his pain with understanding the point of life. This is why people who go through depression, what do they start considering and contemplating at times? Life and the meaning of it. Why do some people take their own life? Because they're in the state of not understanding the point anymore, right? The psalmist here is commenting on, on the point of life, the brevity of life, the vanity of life. The same word vanity in here is used in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over. The vanity of life. While doing this, he's keeping a watch on himself. He's conscious of his vulnerability, of his weaknesses. He is circumspect, meaning he's looking around his complaining carefully to make sure that it's still proper. And he doesn't want to fall into temptation. He knows he's very vulnerable to Satan's tactics. From the very beginning, he's keeping a watch, it says, over his mouth. So this passage helps us to unpack the realities of life, the hardships of life, how to keep a proper perspective through it all, in the midst of all the vexing problems, how to approach God for help. So let's read Psalm 39 together. And then we'll pray and go section by section through this passage. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O oh Lord, 
Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am a mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth who is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there are no doubt countless ones here today in your presence who need this truth. That life is hard. It is difficult. That your hand often is the discipline. Brings hardship for our good. That it is purifying. That it's good because it causes us to turn to you and to run to you. To remind us that hope alone is found in you and in your son and in the gospel. So Father, remind us of these truths again today that you are good and you are kind and that you have all of the answers to life, that wisdom belongs with you, and that if we ask for it, you give it liberally. Help us to believe these things, increase our faith, to trust you, to turn to you in times of trial and difficulty. And when we do cry out to you, we would cry out correctly. In Christ's name we ask these things, amen. So in verses 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3, right away we see silence before the Lord. There are times when we're going through difficulty, depression, frustration. Trials are just mounting upon us that God wants us to just be silent. If you remember in the the book of Job, there was a lot of talking and a lot of banter and communication going on. And the whole last part of the book, what does Job do? Sits and listens. He shuts his mouth, and God tells him, okay, you've talked enough, now it's my turn. There's a good thing to just sit and be quiet. But the tendency is, in our culture, when people are frustrated, going through trials and difficulty, instead of silence, what do people do? They turn up the volume. They distract themselves with maybe binge-watching Netflix with a six-pack. Right? Maybe some other things. Maybe they're prone to going to the refrigerator or busying themselves as much as they can with as much as they can do to just, what? To get sidetracked, to not deal with something. And when it comes to your spiritual journey, there needs to be time in your schedule. There needs needs to be time in your life, especially when you're going through trials, to just be quiet. 
And this isn't the Buddhist empty your mind type meditation that I'm talking about. You don't need to empty your mind. Okay, we don't need more of that in this culture. You need mindful meditation on God and his goodness and who he is and his attributes and prayer and running to who God is. David knows God. And he's contemplating his relationship with him and he is silent. So how do you respond when you're going through trials, tribulations, difficulties? Do you, do you allow yourself that to, to go through that inner turmoil of crying out silently to the Lord quietly someplace alone? Do you do that or do you distract yourself and delay dealing with what needs to be dealt with? So we have silence before the Lord. David made a commitment to control himself with what was going on in his inner turmoil, whatever reason we have for, uh, whatever reason there was for this, we don't know, but he purposely, intentionally uh, wanted to scrutinize his own behavior And this is something that we often get wrong. I think we tend to, as a people, to be more reactive than intentional. So what about you? When someone cuts you off, interrupts you, or ignores you, or fails you again and again, how do you react to that? Right? Are you intentional? Do you stop yourself before you speak? Do you take control of your reactions, or do you just hit back? And also, how are you in your relationship with God with those things? When God brings something into your life, are you intentional, are you intentional about how you go to God? Are you keeping a tight watch over your responses? So the phrase in verse one has the words, my ways, right? Frank Sinatra had a song called My Way, right? It's a great tune. I'm a huge Frank Sinatra fan. But it's a terrible, terrible philosophy of life. I did it, how? My way, right? A lot of us love that independence and I'm going to forge my own path and, you know, I'm going to attract everything good to me, the law of attraction, all that crap. But David takes his ways, my ways here, and he sets them carefully before the Lord. David doesn't want to forge his own way. He takes his ways and he does what with it? He submits it to God. Even in his frustration, he wants to consider all his ways, his actions, his reactions, how he's going to deal with what the hand that he's been dealt here, and he lays it in submission before God. He doesn't try to take charge of it. He lets God take charge of it. And he wants to deal with it carefully before his Lord. So David's talking about his behavior here, all his ways. He knows he's in a very vulnerable state. David wants to make sure that he's in accordance with God's wishes, with God's laws. Is that what you want? When you're going through trial and tribulation, do you take all your behaviors, all your responses, and do you lay them before the Lord and say, I want to handle this correctly? We're going to go through this trial We're going to try to go through this trial as best we can in our complaining before God to make sure that it's biblical and that it's right and that it's good. 
So David found it difficult to muzzle his mouth here. We have that language. Okay? I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Right? Why do horses have muzzles? Excuse me. Why do oxen have muzzles? Right? So they can't eat or it it keeps them from being able to fully use their mouth. Right? So David wants to be very careful with whatever, however he's going to use his mouth. There needs to be limits on it. So be careful with that language. He doesn't want the ungodly to have a reason. Here's why. To blaspheme God's name. So this is very similar to instances we saw last week as well. The godly were surrounding David. This was part of the consequences of a sin was the Lord was allowing the enemies to come in on David to bring more trauma to him, to bring correction to him, bringing pain and frustration. And so David wanted to react to that carefully and wanted to be very careful with every word that he says. David knew the truth that he also writes elsewhere, that man will give an account for every single word that they, what? Speak. Do you believe that? You will give an account for every word you speak. Yes, men, even when you hit that bad golf shot, and the word for doesn't come out, maybe a different one, you're going to give an account for, for careless words, for careless actions. David wanted to be very careful with that. So in verse 2, the psalmist wants to speak candidly about his situation. He wants to be honest about his situation. God wants that honesty, but he wants that careful honesty. He wants us to be fearful about our words properly. And David also doesn't want to be misunderstood and misspeak. David feared God. He respected God. He wanted to be careful with his approach to God. So he vowed to be silent for a time to collect his thoughts, to think before he speaks. That's just a good rule for life. Kids, think before you speak. And I should have said adults first. Think before you speak. Think long before you act. And that is what David's doing here. He's exercising wisdom. This is a sign again of his submission to God. Of his hope in God. And this is way better than lashing out in anger. So again, it's not clear what exactly is bothering the psalmist. That quite frankly doesn't matter. What matters is what's bothering him, how he dealt with it. Whatever was bothering him, how did he deal with it? How did he deal with that pain? What matters is that we too learn how to be respectful in our complaints to God. It's like the kids, our children, we teach them, come talk to us, right? When you're frustrated or maybe we did do something, come talk to us, but talk to us respectfully, right? You can come tell us whatever's bothering you, but there's a certain way you talk to your dad. There's a certain way that you talk to your mother. Same thing is true with our Heavenly Father. He wants our complaints. We need to run to God, but how you come to him matters greatly. So whatever the cause of the stress was here, whatever the disease he was dealing with, the psalmist learned or relearned again this most valuable truth. He learned how massively limited he also was. He was very limited. He learned how weak he was. He learned that he was not in control of hardly anything in his life. In his self-awareness, he became vexed by life. 
He had to submit himself again to God, take that agonizing pain that was purifying him, and run to the Lord. And then in verse 3, in verse 3, we see the psalmist learn more about himself in his silence. God allows trials and tribulations to show you what's really in your heart. It's like a tea bag. Sometimes the the we, we have our tea bags at home and the ends pop off and we don't really know what tea it is. Right? We usually leave it in the box so we know if it's peppermint or I don't know what all kind we have, Earl Grey, whatever. But sometimes the tags come off. You can tell by smell a little bit, but when you're sick, you can't smell that well. And you don't know what's in that tea. So how do you find out what kind of tea that is? You put it in hot water, and what's in that tea bag, it comes out, doesn't it? That heat will bring that out. And the same thing is true in life. You and I are like tea bags. We're put in hot water. What's inside is going to come out. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. For the psalmist here, what's inside starts pouring out. He learned what was in his heart. He was learning a lot of hard truths about how little he controlled his life. He learned how much more difficult it was to control himself. We see phrases like, my heart grew hot. That fire burned, expressing his anger. And the more he reflected on his situation, the more he became agitated, fearful, sorrowful, exasperated. So he meditated, and the meditation did not cause him again to empty his head, but rather fan the flames of anger within him. And then he had to speak. So the next verse says that he spoke with his tongue then. Right at the end of three, I speak with my tongue. He had to cry out. He had to break his silence. He held it as long as he could. That's wise. Hold it as long as you can. Be as controlled as you can. So in verses 4 through 8, what's inside came out. We have David's prayer for divine illumination. Is that what comes out of you? Does a prayer for divine illumination come out from your heart? Verses 4 through 6, he's unable to solve his problem. So he turns to the Lord to enlighten him. That's what illumination means, that, that he asks for God to enlighten him with that truth. For instruction, he wants a listening ear. He wants an understanding heart. He asked the Lord to show him his life's end and the number of his days. So the purpose is not that David may plan every day of his life or that all that will happen daily. Rather, he simply wants to know the purpose of life. He's kind of lost his sense of purpose. Does that happen to you when you're going through difficulty? Maybe through some traumatic events in your life. Do you not start to lose and feel like, what's my purpose? Many people do. He's not alone in this. You're not alone in that. He wants a greater awareness of the, of the perspective of life, of the brevity of life. And he wants God's help to accept and understand that brevity. He mentions brevity of life three times in the following phrases. The phrase is, my life's end the number of my days, and how fleeting is my life. She's struggling with the purpose of life, the quickness of life. What's the point of being here anymore, he may be asking. And as David is praying for these things, David has some insights into his life and life in general that he shares with us. For instance, in verse 5, the psalmist gives us an insight. He reminds us that life is brief. It is brief. He compares the life to a hand breath. That's basically these four fingers. It's one of the smallest units of 
Jewish measurements. It's equivalent to a couple of inches. In our hearts, we often think of life as, as a span 50 miles long, when in reality it's four inches. We're made to live for a brief time. So the psalmist not only wrestles with the brevity of life, maybe he's having some midlife crisis here, I don't know. But then he turns his attention to people who feel established. People who are strong and self-assured and from God's perspective. What are they? They're they're but a breath. So verse 6 then deals with how much of life is really uncertain. Uncertainty. This is a general and less ambiguous statement, but human beings' existence and futures are filled with uncertainty, aren't they? How much of your life is really certain? Not much at all. And this is where the book of Ecclesiastes really starts to resonate with this chapter. The human is a mere phantom, here and gone. In other words, human importance is dwarfed in comparison to the eternality of God. People spend a short life striving for status, striving for health, wealth, prosperity, stuff, things. They build empires. But amidst all the human accomplishments, we all share the same exact fate. A box in the ground. Right? With a tombstone. Human beings are mortal and cannot control their affairs after death. There are wills. I would recommend having one. Make sure you take care of those things. The Bible says a, a, a godly man leaves an inheritance. should try to do that within reason. Again, the inability to control, though, is what he's wrestling with here. We all have the same fate, death. Our existence is fragile. So in verses 7 through 8, we have a prayer for deliverance. A prayer for deliverance then. Again, this is what comes out of David's heart. The quest for finding life's meaning and the insight on the nature of people drive the psalmist to ask this question. What do I look for in this life while I'm here for the short time? He concludes this most important truth that nothing in life is important or reliable unless one's hope is securely anchored in God. Nothing matters apart from the glory of God. Everything is to be done, how? For the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's where you have all meaning and joy and purpose and life. It's easier to say than do, especially when you're depressed or been through trial. But that is the truth the psalmist is battling to cling to. Do you you feel that he's warring to cling to this truth? He's striving at it? He wants to anchor his hope in God in all things. That is where he finds his meaning for life, his commitment to God. So the psalmist is also more aware of his own shortcomings in the presence of God then. So he's no longer satisfied with the knowledge of human condition, though he is all too aware of his own frail condition. He is a sinner, and he suffers the consequences of his sins. While his hope is in God, he cries out to be saved from his transgressions as well. He needs God's forgiveness. He needs reconciliation. He needs healing. 
He wants to place his hope in the Lord. He's anxiously waiting for him. So if you're going to have anxiety for something, anxiously await on God. In verse 9, we have silence before God again. So what's in his heart spills out. Then he comes back again to verse 9, and he stops again. This is sort of a, a sila, a pause for him. We even have the word selah in the Psalms. That's for you to pause and stop for a minute, be silent. You need that comma there before you continue in your life. So he stops again and he's quiet. He's reflecting on everything that just happened in 1 through 8. He's not understanding everything yet. David is resolved to willingly accept all things from God's sovereign hand. He knows that he's a personal God. He's not an impersonal force. He knows that God has charge over his life, but his heart has to catch up to what he knows is true in his head. Okay? Take time to let that happen. And then in verse 10, what's inside comes out again. He picks up and he starts praying again. But this time he prays for divine sustenance. A strength that, that soul food. In 10 and 11. Here the psalmist's reflection serves as the basis for his renewed appeal to God. For God to sustain him in this life. Much like you saw in verses 4 and 5. The Lord instructs David on the meaning of life as a gift whose limitations bring a great amount of proper and good frustration. So he's not only vexed by life, by its limitations, by his own limitations, but he is also vexed because of the Lord's discipline on him for his sin. And I don't need to spend a lot of time on that because you patiently bore that last week in Psalm 38. That was a hard text, but such a good one. But we see that here again in this section, what we saw last week. So he's noting his sin, sinful frailty, his human frailty, the divine discipline that hedged David in to keep him before the face of God for his good. But we also see in this passage truth in regards to wealth. The Lord sovereignly limits the wealth and aspirations of people. He disciplines his children who live for the wrong things by sometimes taking things from them. Those who live merely for the sake of living with no eternal perspective will soon be disgusted by those things that they were living for. So he uses the analogy of the scourge to talk about this fatherly discipline that is brought upon him. He needed those disappointments He needed that scourging. He knew that the Lord needed to take some things away from him. He talks about God consuming like a moth. Very destructive. But that's the hand of the Lord being kind to David to take away what needed to be taken away. So doesn't Jesus' use of this analogy when he teaches us what to live for kind of sound familiar here? Jesus talks about the same thing that uh, thieves will break through and steal. Remember that passage? Not to live for those things. We talked about that in our confession today, to, to live for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll add all these things. We don't need to chase for them. Maybe David was chasing for these things, and God took away those treasures. We're called to lay up treasures in heaven, where moths cannot corrupt, 
David's learning the brevity of life that we're sojourners here on earth. We're pilgrims, if you will, on a journey. This is not our home. This is not our lasting home. We're here for a time. And God in his grace and goodness often teaches us the meaning of the brevity of life as a hard lesson so that we can learn true joy in living correctly. In 12 through 13 then, David moves to his final prayer. A prayer for deliverance. Do you know he didn't start with that right away, right? He waits to the end to work through these things before he cries out for that. In submission to God's will and in recognition of his humanity, David returns to the Lord with a renewed spirit. The repetition of the word hear or listen and be not deaf is part of this lament psalm. He addresses God as Lord. He's master. He's not just savior. But as one who has complete rule over David's life, this also speaks, the language here brings about the idea of David understanding that he is in covenant with God. He has that lasting commitment with God. Note that he also feels like a stranger in God's presence. Much like last week, we see David in the same position, still feeling like he doesn't have that complete reconciliation yet that renewal with God, but he has no doubt about who God is. He rests in that. He trusts in who God is, and that is the key. Sometimes when we feel odd or different, we tend to project that onto other people, don't we? When you're feeling awkward or weird or or around someone, you start to project that on them and then back to you. But the psalmist, though he feels really weird, Like an alien in God's presence, he never doubts the goodness and the character of God, though. Where we are continually faltering and failing, God is steadfast, faithful, and good. God's character never changes. He's always the same. So David doesn't project his failings and limitations on God the Father. You and I probably tend to do that at times. When we have failed God or, and then, and then the, consequences start coming back, we start to doubt the character of God because he's giving us that discipline, thinking he's doing something wrong. David doesn't do that. He knows that God loves him. And finally, David has a sincere longing for the blessing of God's presence and for his fellowship. The psalmist prays for the Lord to remove his judgment. Lord, do you Please remove this now in verse 13. He wanted the suffering to be over, for the joy to be renewed again. It's very similar to Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy, what, of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. That's how he ends this one. God, renew your relationship with me. Renew my heart. He wants that reconciliation with God. For David, this joy was not some futuristic or what we call eschatological joy for the next life. He wanted that joy in this brief life now. And for the Christian, it can be. For you and I, it it should be now. It won't be perfect like in the next life, but that kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven is through these means. This is how you begin to taste that in this life. It's through the rhythm of this confession of inward, outward, upward to God. Moving from guilt to grace to gratitude. 
That is the flow of this psalm. And he ends with that joy of that prayer for that to be here and now, to taste it now, to taste and see that God is good.